Welcome to The Proletarian Contrarian, the podcast where we reevaluate bad films through a leftist perspective. I'm Nick. And I'm Lewis. And we have a harsh sentence for all of you listeners tonight. We have a Marvel Comics adaptation um, from the 80s? Yeah, last year of the 80s, 1989, The Punisher directed by Mark Goldblatt, starring Dolph Lundgren, Louis Gossett Jr., Yaron Krabbe, Kim Miori, and Nancy Everhard. Uh, the Punisher, folks, you know, that guy, Skull Logo. Yeah, the the most problematic Marvel character by far. Um, that's, <laughs> that's, that's pretty safe to say. Um, yeah, reactionary by nature. There's uh, mm-hmm. really almost no way uh, for us to redeem him uh, v- via leftist politics. I mean, this movie does a fair job at that, I think. Um, I, I like this movie, but he's, you know, you like you see cops having the, the logo um, as like a decal on the back of the cruisers, which is kind of kind of fucked up. No, it's perfectly fine. I don't see anything wrong with that. What do you? What do you oh, mean? Yeah, I mean it's, yeah, I mean idealizing a, a, a character who who takes the law into his own hands and you know slaughters jaywalkers or whatever. Yeah, but, um, just indiscriminately mows down. Uh, you know anybody who crosses crosses him at all. <laughs> perfectly fine for a cop to think about. What's really funny about the Punisher is. Um, there's this one quote by by George Lucas. I mean, like very misattributed. I'm I'm gonna butcher it, but he he said something to the effect one time that he he considered Indiana Jones to be the American version of uh, James Bond, um, in the sense that like Indiana the Indiana Jones character and mythos kind of sums up and and acts as like the avatar of of the American ideal, like like the classical two fisted. Um, like bronze age american like action hero ideal but i think the punisher is the american james bond more much more so than um than indiana jones ever was yeah that's for fuck sure uh (laughs) indiana jones is way too cosmopolitan to be the avatar of america um yeah speaking of the avatar of america however uh (laughs) roger corman who we have mentioned uh previously on our swamp thing episode he had a hand in this film uh Mm -hmm. i would say he's definitely the the avatar of uh b-movie uh america and uh just uh yeah that he where you find Roger Corman you find the sensibilities of uh, Americans throughout his career uh <laughs> but yeah so this time around uh he was making superhero films so he didn't have a hand in the production of Swamp Thing but people who came from the Roger Corman school of filmmaking who apprenticed with him made Swamp Thing here however his production studio new world pictures was behind the punisher and one of his Mm -hmm. another one of his apprentices who started out as an editor mark goldblatt directed this film that's interesting he he seems like he's a figure who has um a lot of proteges who go on to do their own work like like proteges who start in one kind of area of production who go on to become script writers directors editors themselves yeah i mean if you look at um the the hollywood new wave of the, of the 60s and 70s 
the majority of those guys come from, uh, you know, some kind of Roger Corman, uh, apprentice, uh, protege, uh, type relationship. Mm-hmm. You have Martin Scorsese who comes out of that, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, Joe Dante, uh, who most people probably wouldn't actually get included in the American New Wave, but I'm doing it anyway. Fuck you, folks. Yeah, fuck it. He's in there. He's in there. <laughs> He's in our pantheon. He should be in everybody's. Um, Absolutely. But yeah, it's it's a it's a long list. Brian De Palma as well. Huh. That's um. That's pretty cool. We should um. Maybe we should do an episode in the future, like specifically just this like retrospective of Roger Corman's uh, work or whatever. But um, that's that's for the future. Um, we did find um a review here by Christopher Null of filmcritic.com from 2004 reviewing the punisher um amusingly enough uh the 2004 was also the year that the uh thomas jane uh, punisher movie came out so a little interesting bit of coincidence there null says one of cinema's worst duds ever that's harsh dolph lundegren is actually at his mediocre best here as the marvel comic star a former policeman turned vigilante who is out to avenge the death of his wife and child things go from stupid to completely asinine when the Punisher decides to take on the local Japanese Yakuza mobsters who have kidnapped the children of his usual enemies, the Italian Mafia. Can't we all just get along? Not if it means sitting through this film, marred by cheeseball sets and special effects, lame fight sequences, and some of the worst acting ever to disgrace the scene. Director Mark Goldblatt returned to editing after this bomb. So I want to punish uh, Christopher Null because that is <laughs> that is uh, a very unfair and heavy-handed review. Um... And besides his little quip about the acting, maybe I kind of disagree with every point that he raised. Yeah, uh, that's actually why I picked this review because I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I disagreed so heavily with it. It's punishment. <laughs> it is. It is punishment. Um, we are gonna we're gonna put him uh, in the docket later uh, because we do believe in due process. But uh, it's 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 meted out by just us. It's just us two. Yeah, ju- <laughs> that's our just due us. process. Just us, justice. Um, but yeah, so it's also interesting. Um, so as you said, coincidentally, this is the same year that the Thomas Jane Punisher comes out. But the reason why I chose a review, not from the time that this film came out, but from basically two decades later, is because uh, there really were no reviews of the Punisher when it came out, uh, at least not wow. American reviews because it got a severely limited release uh again back to corman new world pictures his company was basically going under at the time uh it gets bought out uh the people who buy the punisher film from him have no interest in releasing it uh wider in america uh so they just throw it onto the uh the home video market in like 1991 yeah, I mean, I, I can see that given the production value of this movie. Like, that, that doesn't really surprise me. But I, I kind of like this movie. Um, it's no Swamp Thing. As as far as, as like, pre-Iron Man um, Marvel adaptations go, this was pretty pretty good, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I think what they did in, in this film uh, is the best they could have done with their severely limited budget. I'll echo you there that uh, they did not make a film as as great as, as Swamp Thing, uh, Return of Swamp Thing, but uh, who will ever do that? Again, folks. Um, us, maybe, in the future. <laughs> if, 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 they give us the, uh, if they give us the rights to, like, I don't know, Hellcat or something. 
Yes. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, well, especially since every single uh, Marvel Netflix show has been canceled, there probably will mm. be no Hellcat anymore, as she was in yeah. uh, Jessica Jones, and I assume no longer. Yeah, and along with um, Jessica Jones, they also they also shot down the the ongoing Punisher series, but uh, who gives a shit? So let's just get on to uh, the, <laughs> the original, the old school, the, the best Punisher adaptation that I've ever seen. Yeah, the superior. So the first thing that we're met with when we when this movie starts off is um, the credits, the credits opening credit scene. It's like this cool kind of oh god, I'm I'm gonna show off my 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 film ignorance here, but like <laughs> very like like gritty seventies early eighties like New York City crime movie. I was thinking of like oh what's that one Death Wish with uh, yeah, Bronson for sure. Um, the, the way in or like French connection or something like the way the these uh colorful like bands of of shots from later in the movie play across the screen and then people's names like flash up yeah so Nick is referencing these um it's it looks they almost look like cardboard cutouts of like goons yeah. and henchmen but I think oh, they yeah. are just like stills from later in the film uh and they and they have like these very like bold comic booky colors to them uh and then there's some dialogue i don't remember exactly i think it's the punisher talking about killing people basically <laughs> of course uh and then uh like whichever side of the screen they're not on there's like Dolph Lundgren just uh like a he, gun like, pops up or something he pops up and like shoots them basically and they shatter and they, yeah and they shatter <laughs> it reminded me almost oh my god this is what i thought of the, of the bond connection because like it reminded me of like a bond movie opening yeah like hyper stylized like james bond interacting with like the the graphics and in then the way that the text plays across the screen like interacting with it breaking it the fourth wall kind of way yeah, definitely. Uh, especially like the second portion of the title when it's just like the concentric circles like mm-hmm. coming at the screen. I thought yeah. that was like a very, uh, very like uh, very Bond esque, or even like uh, it just it looked like the Who logo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, that's a good point. But but yeah, these these title credits are trippy, and um, they do a lot to set the mood really well. And then continuing that mood, we we kind of like do this dolly track down the um the New York like s- sewers, and and we find I, I I think the first time the first person on screen we see is the Punisher, and he's completely naked. Hell yeah, hell yeah. We we see we see like 1989 Dolph Lundgren completely in the buff, just like <laughs> meditating. Is he, he's like meditating in front of like a burning crucifix or something? I I think it's just like a fire. I don't think it's a crucifix, okay. but that'd be amazing if it was, considering yeah. some of his dialogue later <laughs> Which, on. Yeah, he this interpretation of Frank Castle, the Punisher, is um a, a, as we're told in like the opening scene, literally he he talks to God often, and he yep. he he contemplates the the weight of sin upon his soul, and and who who is guilty and who's innocent and who deserves punishment and it's it's pretty fucking psycho yeah i mean he he literally says uh sometimes i talk to god (laughs) and in that moment i believed that this man thought he sat in the same room as god and talked to him about whether or not it was okay to kill just anybody who crosses his path like the problem with every other punish adaptation is he's too normal and too into like 
badass, like like competent and and like has it all together. But no, the the Punisher is fucking like off the off the chain. He he should he should be talking to God. This is great. I liked that they picked Dolph Lundgren with his frame, mm. with just yes. his look. Uh, they also like they he was. He, there's a lot of makeup on him in this film. He looks yeah. uh, a lot more pale than he actually is, and a lot more gaunt. Yeah, he he has the the dark circles under his eyes. Yeah, dark under, circles under his eyes. They put makeup to accentuate like his high cheekbones. It really he looks malnourished. Like he looks like mm-hmm. he has scurvy. Like throughout this whole film. Like he's eating rats in the New York subway, and that's it, really. <laughs> yes, yeah, and um, and and like I was saying earlier, like Punisher when when he's two together, like when when he's like this weekend warrior, like stealing valor, disrespecting the troops kind of guy. That that doesn't really work. He he needs to be kind of like on the dregs of society. He needs to be very grunge and very dusty and grimy all the time. So, in yeah, by far the best presentation of this this character concept um, that I've ever seen on film. Yeah. It's also interesting that they don't go out of their way to really like uh, make us understand why he's so good with firearms, like how he knows how to use explosives or like do literally anything in the film, especially since he's just a cop in this version. He's not, Mm -hmm. he doesn't have any military background as far as we know. And I appreciate they don't go out of the way to describe that. When we think about film now, we think about superheroes, everything has to be realistic. Everything has to have, you know, five to six layers of exposition before we can get to any action. And this film just, it just immediately goes into the action. The exposition is minimal, honestly. Yeah. um, Literally, like, I I think, (laughs) I think really early on in the movie, they, they immediately, like, within 20 seconds, give the Punisher's backstory. It, it's it's like a news report, like discussing the Punisher yep. and his and his effect upon crime, and um, it's the news the news anchor, and he's like, oh yeah, uh, Frank Castle, Officer Frank Castle has been dead, and like his, his family was killed in front of him, and like that's it, like like that's it, that's all we need, and then jump immediately into the story. Yeah, jumps immediately into the story. Later on, we do see a flashback of. Dolph Lundgren looking more put together, like running at his family car as it explodes with his family inside. But again, that's maybe 20 to 30 seconds of footage right there. Uh, And explains how they die and that he saw them die and, uh, you know, gives uh, some psychological heft to it. But yeah, it goes right back to the story from there. And yeah, it's kind of like really cut in this frenetic manner that, um, that comes across as these are the intrusive post-traumatic images that it, that kind of flash into this man's mind and um, very, very effective as far as that goes. Yeah. That, and it's a motif in the film as well. I, I think that that happens at least twice more where we're seeing these flashback times, images yeah. or some kind of, you know, uh, yeah, dream uh, or or nightmare honestly there's the scene later where like his his kids have like guns and they're they're standing yeah. at like the foot of the bed shooting yeah. him and his wife there's some heavy shit in this movie man this it's it depicts his ptsd very very well no that's that's very true so the basic plot of this movie is um frank castle the punisher is has been doing his thing for at least a couple of years at this point. I think five. 
yeah, five years, and, like, he's killed, like, over 100 people. And the mob in New York is making moves, trying to consolidate power. Punisher, very early on in the movie, takes out a capo um, and blows his house up in a really cool action set piece um, that shows off his his stealthy, predatory uh, side, as well as his overt, brutal, shoot-em-up side. And... Um, he then finds out that the Capos are going to make yet another power move. And as he's about to take them out, the Yakuza from Japan move in. Yeah, we see a real trend of um, the Yakuza depicted both in film and comic books at this time. Uh, comic books, it's most uh, most prominent in Daredevil uh, comics. Uh, Frank Miller's run. Yeah, Wolverine as well. Um, the Hand, which I think is... In both of those comics, is the hand? Yeah, Daredevil definitely fights the hand. Um, Wolverine runs into them quite often as well. Yeah. So, but we see it in film too. Um, I can think as far back as like, I think nineteen seventy-five or seventy-four. There's a film called The Yakuza, directed by Sidney Pollack. It stars Robert mm-hmm. Mitchum, uh, and then. I believe the same year as The Punisher, 1989, there's a Ridley Scott film uh, starring Michael Douglas called Black Rain, where it's another, you know, American police officer uh, fights the Yakuza. So, yeah, this is something that we'll we'll see a lot of. Yeah, and um, I, I think that was that that's kind of I don't want to call it like a stock hackneyed trope, but it kind of is <laughs> of like pitting American mobsters against Yakuza. That's just kind of like one of those classic hard-boiled um, matchups that that that's like old reliable for screenwriters, you know? Yeah, you know, and, and even before we start seeing Yakuza mobsters on film, we see a lot of like Westerns that have samurai in them. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's just like these, mm-hmm. I mean, it's really the reality of like Hollywood is that a bunch of fucking nerds write screenplays. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> A bunch of weeaboo nerds. <laughs> yeah, write so... all this shit. <laughs> and they all want a katana and they all want they all wanna fight with the katana and yeah. um and then they all want the uh the full back tattoos of the Yakuza. Yep. And they and they can they concoct like ridiculous, implausible scenarios in which that could happen. But it makes for some good uh pulpy shit to uh chew on every so often. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it definitely adds uh, some variety to the Punisher story um, mm-hmm. that we've seen on film, at least. Uh, really, most of the time he just takes down some random, uh, nondescript gangsters. If we look at the 2004 film, if we look at the the later Punisher War Zone, and then the TV show, it's uh, it's it's never really that. Um, it doesn't have any like visual flair for the most part. Yeah, very very straightforward. Um, I I did appreciate that in all, all of the Japanese characters. I mean, there there was the expected like stereotype behaviors of um of Japanese characters from the eighties that you that you could um that you could envision, but it was never too bad. Um, there, there was no real overt racism, which considering that like it's New York Italian mafia facing off against Japanese criminals <laughs> um, in the eighties um, there, there were, there were no like super cringeworthy um, 
racialized interactions between those two groups. Yeah, they didn't, um, the screenwriter didn't go overboard with like racial slurs or anything like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So that, that is a, that is a plus, uh, kudos to, to that, that individual, uh, <laughs> Bose Yakin, I think is his name. Um, we'll get there. We'll get there. In the... Yeah. He's, he, he might be a worker of note. I don't think he is folks. Sorry. <laughs> he's, he's not, he's not because he wrote this, uh, yeah, the plot is pretty um, pretty straightforward. Basically, like I was saying before, uh, two warring factions, the Punisher caught between them. The the little bit of nuance that I liked in this in this Punisher story was um, the Yakuza take hostage the children of the of the mafia bosses. And Punisher is he he springs into action because he wants to save these children, even though they're the kids of his enemies. And that um, that really gets at like the the inherent conflict of the Punisher as a character, as this flawed, broken individual who desperately wants to do good, but slaughters people left and right. Um, and I, I, to the best of my knowledge, I don't think Punisher on screen or on film has ever really done anything that heroic. But I'm not I'm not really sure. Uh, no, he hasn't. It's usually for himself. <laughs> like I. Yeah, I watched the the Punisher uh, season one Netflix mm-hmm. show in like a weekend, and it's yeah, uh, he just does a bunch of shit for himself, covering his own ass and like yeah, making amends for his past bullshit. But I mm-hmm. I don't remember him doing anything, yeah, anything uh, of this caliber. Yeah, it's it struck me almost as like a Batman thing to do, like re- really caring for children who have like these horrible flawed parents and um putting himself at risk for them. I mean, my, my expectations were, were really uh, measured for this movie, but it, that that little plot wrinkle kind of really threw me for a loop and I, I really appreciated it. Yeah, the, the kids uh, the kids subplot is, is interesting. I would say it's maybe one of the more problematic elements as well because it's, it's like they're going to be sold into the slave trade or something. So it's kind of positioning the Yakuza as, as yeah. these, uh, these morally unscrupulous folk who are, are totally fine trading children into the slave trade and like maybe yeah. using some of them as concubines. There's, there's like some subtle hints that like yeah. they're going to take a few kids aside to use as, as like concubines. Um, I think that's where that, 80s racialized um like like racialized attitude kind of comes into play a little bit like the Mm -hmm. mafia the mafia dons are presented as more honorable um than the yakuza but um but it it, it's not too overt and and um you kind of really have to pay attention to to the little uh nuances of the dialogue there to, to catch on to all this yeah, that's true. Uh, I, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say they're overt stereotypes. But uh, so back to the kids. Tommy Franco is uh, the son of the main boss, whose name is also Tommy Franco. Maybe Johnny uh, yeah, I, Franco. I don't remember, but I his last name is Franco. Let's call. Let's call him Tony Franco, just because. Yeah, let's Tony Franco Tony. Soprano. Um, yeah played by that so the older franco uh father is played Tony. by uh your own uh Krabbe. he's uh well known i believe he's a dutch actor uh he's in one of my uh, favorite steven soderbergh films king of the hill which has no relation to the tv mm. show at all it's actually okay. a <laughs> depression it's a depression era movie or it's set in depression era 
Um, but uh, yeah, so he's the the father, and uh, Tommy Franco is the son, who is this film's fail son. Yeah, yeah. Every every pro con film is fated to have one, um, but when when little Tommy Franco is introduced, he he's with his his dad, and like his dad's here at Capo, and the Capo's like. Oh, so uh, show me what'd you learn at that fancy boarding school of yours? And Tommy <laughs> Franco's like, "Oh, give me a quarter," and he like makes it disappear or something. So like, this mafia don, this mafia don like heir is sent off to like a fancy boarding school in Italy, and he learns how to like play hydronos or something. So <laughs> it's a bit of a stretch, but technically, I would call that fail son behavior. No, he's totally a fail son. Throughout the whole movie, he wears uh, his boarding school outfit as well. Yes. He never yes. changes because he's kidnapped from boarding school, actually. Like, well, he's he's kidnapped from his private school in America. Yeah, yeah. And then he gets, like, he gets beaten up by the Yakuza as well. He tries to be heroic and, and save the other kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think save the little girl from becoming, like, a sex slave. Uh, and he just gets, he gets, like, thrown around. Yeah. Yeah, he um, he's the most successful of the fail sons that we've had in the show so far. Um, but he keeps getting kidnapped, re-kidnapped. Like he is, he's true. the reason why. Like he is, he's kind of the impetus for a lot of the action set pieces in the second and third act of this film. Yeah, he he's the reason that the third act exists in this film. Yeah, yeah, no, he is right because. Once Frank Castle Punisher tries to save the kids, uh, Tommy Franco's the only kid he is he's unable to save. He's the only one that gets left behind. Yeah, yeah, and that's and so the final uh, scene where the Punisher teams up with his uh, mafia nemesis is is them storming the Yakuza headquarters. Yeah, he um he goes with Tony Soprano Franco to um to save Tommy. Uh, from the Yakuza and um, that's actually a really kick-ass action set piece that it's, it's a pretty extended one too it's definitely the longest I would say it's the majority of the third act of the film um, yep. bef- before we get ahead of ourselves there are some interesting set pieces prior to that um, we had mentioned the opening set piece in the the mafia mansion that kind of uh, is the inciting incident of the film uh, there's a not as interesting or unique uh, action set piece in an underground casino, but it's fun. Yeah, I had high hopes for that one. Um, that that set piece, if anything, it, it really reminded me of like of um, like a, like a setting from the Sandman comics, the, the Neil Gaiman um, mm. early '90s Sandman comics, like underground grunge, kind of like S and M, seedy underbelly of society. Um, club dance area kind of thing but um yeah the the action was really i i think frank he literally like shoots up some lottery machines in that scene and that's it <laughs> yeah like he, what uh slot machines yeah he just yeah he, he kills like maybe two yakuza thugs and then he just mostly just shoots up uh yeah slot machine <laughs> yeah and that that was crazy because like he it, it folk he has this gigantic gun and like Dolph Lundgren's a big guy, but like he has this gigantic M60, and it, it does like all these crazy shots, just like over and over and over and over, and it literally lasts like two minutes, and he's just he's just pumping lead into these slot machines, and that's it. Yeah, he even has the rocket launcher attachment, and he <laughs> he fires a few at the machines. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I mean, 
technically it's illegal, I guess. So you can get them on that. Yeah. Uh, underground gambling, probably not on the books. The better mid-act uh, set piece is when he goes to Coney Island. Um, yes. Fuck yeah. Yeah. So another character that we completely forgot to introduce is the, the thespian sidekick character. <laughs> Uh, so Punisher has this dweeby kind of older ma- older gentleman sidekick who who self-identifies as a thespian um, and who gathers information and assists him as necessary. It's very weird, but yeah, he 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 shows up early on. The two of them go to Coney Island. I why were they going there? Were they were they going to save the children? Yes. So I think um, the thespian character who I li- I literally don't even think has a name i think he's just the thespian yeah uh but he i think he's given some faulty uh intel uh to Mm. to bait frank to coney island basically yeah Uh, yeah yeah it's it's intel about the kids i think it's like the kids are at coney island in this like fun house uh frank gets there and it's pretty obvious it's an ambush. There's like a ton of guys from the ninjas side. Yeah, actual ninjas. Um, Nin- ninjas, ninjas going down fun slides to shoot attack the Punisher. <laughs> yeah, it's it's easily the best uh, little touch in this film is when not only are they sliding down the slides, but like they're shooting their guns <laughs> while they're sliding. <laughs> and then he gets into a fight with them. Um, on like a on a carousel that like gets activated. Yeah, like this this mini carousel that doesn't even have any horses or anything. It's nope. like it's literally <laughs> just like it's it's like a lazy susan, like a rotating yeah platform. I was about yeah. to say it's like a lazy susan. It's an automatic lazy susan. <laughs> I have no idea what it is, but he fights a few guys hand to hand on that, and that's pretty cool. He tries he runs some people over or something. He, I know he gets on his bike again. He has a this. He has that really like dusty old uh, American chopper. And then um, the daughter of the Yakuza leader, uh, the Yakuza leader is Lady Tanaka. And she she's pretty terrifying. But um, her, her daughter is like the main enforcer of the Yakuza. And the daughter like catches him with a chain and captures him. Yeah, that's right. I think he's he's kind of running people over with his his bike. He's about to escape. But then, like, she throws a chain into his wheel, his back wheel. That sends him flying into this large grouping of Yakuza. And he's trying to fend them off as best he can. But he's he's pretty weakened at this point. I think he, he, gets, I think he gets shot even during this scene. Yeah, and... Um... And technically, it's it's on a chain. It's a kusari gamma, which is the which is oh my god the chain end of the, of the chain and scythe weapon um, that the ninja would use. All right, folks, and that was the <laughs> last episode of Procon. <laughs> hey, there's a ton of weeb shit in this movie, and I can I, I have some I have some cool stuff to say about that later on. Yeah, that's true. That that appears more in the in the final action set piece. So yeah. I'll give you your due at that point, okay. uh, but not until then. Okay. Yeah. It, and I, I really think it's just like a, a just like a chain that she like grabs off the ground. It's not like a like a actual ninja weapon or whatever. But um. But yeah. So so Frank is brought back to the Yakuza headquarters. He's tortured for a little bit, and so is Thespian, who who has also been captured. It's this really weird like princess bride kind of like tortured torture device it's, it's like st- being stretched on the rack but it looks kind of like high right. tech 
Yeah, it's it's basically like a high tech rack. It's funny that you said Princess Bride. I had a totally different um, pop culture signifier that I thought of, uh, which was uh, Muppets Treasure Island. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> when, Excellent. When Gonzo, Very... when the uh, when the pirates do that to Gonzo, and then he gets like really stretchy and long for yeah. like, half the movie. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, oh That's God. what I was hoping would happen to the thespian character. It would, it would make him a little more interesting. Oh my god! Oh, and, and another, um, another, another funny thing about the thespian is like half his dialogue rhymes. Yeah, that's right. It's in rhyming couplets. Half of his dialogue. Half the time. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So Punisher obviously escapes um, the torture. Punisher and thespian, um, and that's when they rescue the kids. And they they rescue the kids inside of a bus. Like they steal a bus, and they just load the kids up on it, and they drive away. <laughs> like that's his big escape plan. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, so I think at this point, like the thespian, he just tells him like run away, go somewhere else. So Frank actually steals the bus uh, from like a bus driver who goes to like buy a paper or something, or he yeah. goes to a bodega and then his bus is gone. Yeah. Uh, but Frank actually has a passenger, which it seems like he's another indigent drunkard uh, who yells like, "Hey, you missed my you stuff." Missed my stuff. <laughs> But Frank actually stops and lets him off and apologizes see, for doing so. See, th- this Punisher is actually human. Like he he's he's crazy, and like yeah. he talks to God, and he he's dirty and he's weird. But he he's more of a person than like the the military weekend warrior fantasies that every other Punisher adaptation is. Yeah, it's true. There there are moments where um, he kind of breaks like the stoic facade. Mm-hmm. Um, that is one instance. Um, even later when he's he's talking to the kids um, and, and, and when he's talking to the thespian as well, there are these these moments where you do see like this this human being come through yeah. uh, and and he gets to be funny as well. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think we can say that like the most modern Punisher, he, he he's also allowed some bits of humor. But um, these were like really these are just corny one-liners, which is is not something the Punisher usually does. No. He doesn't quip like that. <laughs> no, he doesn't. Um, but I bought it. I, I thought it was in keeping with what this movie presented as as a character. But yeah, the the <laughs> the other thing that I really loved about this bus scene was um, as the Akuza were were trying to chase down the bus and, and recapture the kids. And they would try to jump onto the bus. The kids would like help Punisher. Like they they, they would like <laughs> yes. they would like bite the fingers and like punch <laughs> punch the faces of the Yakuza as they tried to jump onto the bus. It was like I don't know. It 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 was almost something out of like a like the Goonies or like a, a kid adventure yeah. movie. Yeah, um, it was very Goonies esque. They uh they actually do merc one guy because yeah. uh, they knock him off the the bus and then oh he gets God. run over by his own like <laughs> friends in a car. <laughs> so, what a modern day Punisher would have done, he he would have turned around and shot those kids in the face because they killed somebody. Yeah, that's retribution. But um, but yeah, the ki- the kids are returned safely to to the police and um concurrent with all of this uh had been the punisher's old police partner jake who had been trying to who had been trying to like bring him in for the past like five years um because we learned that that uh frank 
had helped Jake overcome the loss of his family or something. Um, well, it was uh, overcome alcoholism. Uh, yeah. So he had he had his family didn't die. Jake's family didn't die. Um, he, I guess, you could probably just assume that his wife divorced him and he was estranged from his family because of alcoholism. Yeah, Jake was the former star cop of the force, and his life went to hell. And then he he turned to the bottle, and Frank came into his life and kind of like reinvigorated him and everything. And so before Frank's tragedy. Jake developed this real sense of loyalty. Um, and that's why he's so hellbent in finding the Punisher. Uh, so when the Punisher drops the kids off to the police from the bus, he's brought in and um, he has this really, this really intense, very like noir-esque um, reunion with Jake in the, in, the, in the prison cell. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's like half interrogation, half... Um, intervention mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. with with Frank with Jake just like yelling at Frank about how he saved him and how you know he's not he they've both lost a lot in their lives it doesn't mean that he has to throw it all away to this like you know Christian zealotry retribution uh, <laughs> that he's this kick he's been on recently um, yeah it was it was pretty heartfelt honestly and it was again another instance of of the punisher having like these real ties to the real world and yeah it's it's one of the better scenes of acting for Dolph Lundgren in this film that kind of haggard appearance that we touched upon earlier with with the dark circles under his eyes and and the pale makeup and everything that's that really came into effect here um when he's when he's shown locked up in the cell um, and, and, and the scene is actually right after the scene is when those trippy, uh, psychedelic memories of his family kind of kick back in and, and that's when all this happens. And th- that kind of inserted into this moment where he's having this emotional reconnection with Jake. I don't know. It, it was, it's no high art to be sure, but it's, it, it was, it was effective and, um, it was pretty pretty fucked up seeing those flashbacks of his kids pointing guns at him and him running to a car that's blowing up in the middle of like this emotional breakdown. Yeah. No, it's, it's not high art, but, uh, as that one Twitter bot says, it is art. However. Yes. Yes, it is. It is art. It is art. And it is the Punisher. I guess, uh, probably one of the best, scenes which we have alluded to um probably the one of the most extended sequences is the final action set piece the Mm -hmm. storming of the yakuza headquarters by uh tony soprano franco and (laughs) the punisher hell yeah frank has to team up with tony soprano franco to um to save uh little tommy and uh jake is held as collateral but this whole storming lady tanaka's uh tower sequence it's definitely the longest and most involved and most creative uh, fight scene in the movie uh and it's it's pretty damn fun punisher and punisher and franco kind of just like mow down a bunch of a bunch of uh yakuza like schlubs and um some more like skilled opponents come out and they attack them with like naginata at one point that that was really cool like punisher punisher fights with a naginata which is a giant um samurai spear and then he stabs a guy against oh, the wall. Okay. 
yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and that um, was cool there's it's like those like paper those paper and wood sliding doors and panels and everything and like ninjas are jumping through them and punisher is stabbing through them and like they're punisher and franco hide behind them and like shoot down the the yakuza soldiers that come out through them and then thespian shuts off the lights and like the emergency power comes on so everything's in red and i don't know it, it was a pretty stylized but still gritty and um in like sweaty kind of like fight sequence which i liked yeah this sequence really combined the the grit of 80s cinema and uh the the more stylized and colorful three color uh comic book aesthetic really just a nice marriage of those of those two themes here uh similar to uh, the way uh, Return of Swamp Thing was able to, to to juggle that as well. Yeah, as you were saying, I really liked the uh, those paper and and wood partitions and and the use of them. It 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 did kind of give a sense of almost like comic book panels mm. uh, in in that scene. It it's just like it it gave this nice you know framework. It it, it defined the edges of each shot really well. Um, and, and, and really it guided your eye towards like where someone was going to jump out or where they were going to attack next. Um, it, and, and then of course it being all washed in red, uh, was an interesting choice. I mean, cause you have maybe three to five minutes of the film just being totally in this, in this like red infrared lighting, um, so I thought that was a, a pretty bold uh, stylistic choice. Yeah, and it it literally makes everything look like it's drenched in blood for this final confrontation. Um, you have Punisher facing off against Lady Tanaka's daughter, who's her bodyguard, in this pretty pretty brutal but cool um, like li- like life or death kind of choke out struggle. And you have Franco running after um, his son, who's be t- being taken hostage by Lady Tanaka personally, who holds a, a Tanto dagger to his throat. Obviously, Punisher kills Lady Tanaka's daughter after they after they go at it for a little bit. Um, Franco's holding Lady Tanaka at gunpoint. There's there's a standoff, and then she's like, "Put the gun in your mouth and shoot yourself, and I'll let him go." And and she has like this heavy kind of geisha makeup on, and. I don't know, like like her, the whole the whole economy, the whole setup of the scene, and the way that her her face was done up, and the way that she delivered it, it was pretty intense. It was like this, in in, in making making this uh, boy's father kill himself in front of him. Um, it was it was a pretty intense scenario uh, for the, for like this pulpy, this pulpy finale of a pulpy movie, you know. Yeah, and um, it's definitely interesting at that point because the power comes back on. Uh, they're in a different room, mm. and instead of red being the the primary color of of the scene, it's it's white um, with some like black accent tones. Yeah. Um, overall, and we can maybe talk about this a little later. Uh, the 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 design of like the Akusa HQ is pretty awesome. Um, but in, in these scenes, it's very minimalistic. There's really just these white walls, uh, with, you know, some modern art scattered around. And the, the piano in the middle of the room, which is very striking. Yeah. 
yeah the striking black piano in the middle of the room um I, you know i i don't know if this was a direct influence but there's uh, a director seijun uh suzuki mm. who uh did a lot of um yakuza films actually in the uh 60s 70s and 80s uh branded to kill and tokyo drifter uh not tokyo Tokyo drift Drift. (laughs) (laughs) but tokyo drifter still directing in like the the early aughts you know just (laughs) (laughs) um but these films uh were not so much about story they were more about just cinematography and style and there are scenes that are similar to this where it's very few colors uh very minimalistic uh and 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 uh you even see quinn tarantino uh mm-hmm. ape that style a bit with kill bill so uh he his 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 filmography could have been an influence on this as we've said before uh everybody involved in you know roger corman productions uh had a, a, a pretty good knowledge of uh of world cinema so i, I wouldn't put it past him yeah, I definitely got that that sense of really intense stylization, but I don't think it was at the expense of characterization, um, at least in this scene, because I really felt for for mob boss Franco and and, and Tommy um, as he was forced into this power play of killing himself. But then, of course, Punisher jumps in, takes out Lady Tanaka, um, and then Punisher and Franco go at it because, of course, they're they're enemies from the old days. Punisher wins, Punisher kills uh, Tony Soprano Franco, and um, Tommy picks up his father's gun and is, bu- and is going to shoot Punisher. Punisher c- tries to convince him to, to do it. I mean, he, he does the whole thing like he grabs the gun barrel and puts it against his forehead and he's like, kill me, just just do it, just do it. I, I think either way, like, he, he would have won. Like, like, if he died, he'd be put out of his misery. If he doesn't die... It's not what he wants, but he, he gains his moral victory in in diffusing a potential enemy and not creating a successor. So, yeah, Punisher's crafty. It's deep, he, folks. Yeah, it's deep. It's, it's fucking deep. <laughs> it's, it's fucked up and it's deep. It's fucked up and it's deep, and, and that's how we end. Um, Punisher escapes. Jake, who had escaped his own uh, hostage taking, tries to come and capture the Punisher, but... Um, Punisher's going back to his uh, subterranean lair, and we get another ass shot as the movie ends. Yeah, the same ass shot. Like the film is bookended yeah. by the exact same <laughs> ass shot, where we also see Dolph Lundgren's ball sack. Yeah, it's it's all there, folks. It's um it's there for the the non cishet men of our audience. All all, all five of you. <laughs> <laughs> Or for uh, you as well, whatever. If yeah, that's your thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I think the the big thing uh, that we really liked about this movie was the atmosphere and the tone um, that was created through uh, set design, primarily. Um, I know, I know that I loved the the notion of the Punisher as like kind of this this underground dweller, and we got these cool tracking shots of the new york's uh sewer which are really really evocative yeah um both his lair and then the lair of the mob bosses uh Mm -hmm. which was like this like cement looking boardroom 
that had hideous a crucifix and a marble statue. Yeah, like this this extremely plain looking um like oval room with two alcoves, one of which was a crucifix, one of which was a like a knockoff Venus de Milo type thing. Yeah. Uh, and then like this this door oh this, the golden eye circular door yeah. uh that uh splits in the middle and opens up uh but yeah it it looked like a bu- it looked like a bunker like it looked like an underground bunker where like these these weird ass italians eating chinese food <laughs> just hang yes. out waiting for the next like assault <laughs> yeah they were doing that and um and even even the yakuza uh penthouse which we talked about a lot um as as kind of like stereotypical of like a like a japanese final boss level basically uh was um it still had some interesting design quirks uh there was that room it's not like the the final room where the showdown happens but it's like a middle room and there's this um wallpaper or wall decoration of like woman samurai like like wrestling like fighting oh each yeah other. yeah like like w- w- uh female like sumo wrestlers yeah or something weird some kind of like ukayo a uh painting um across the whole wall but like random rooms like that there, there was the other uh the entrance hallway where there was like this round portal across the entrance of the, the elevator or something mm-hmm. um, and it had a god in the portal a statue of a god as well yeah, yeah, just cool, kind of quirky things like that in an otherwise um, very bland, stereotypical, like, tatami mat and, and sliding wall uh, Japanese setting. Yeah, um, definitely. It was definitely... What's interesting, though, is is the use of, like... There's a lot of modern art uh, on the adorning the walls mm-hmm. in, in the Yakuza penthouse. Um, there's the, the, the Elvis Andy Warhol. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. Um, there's a few other like classic or, well, I should say modern art pieces, yeah. uh, <laughs> not classic <laughs> art, but, um, you know, stereotypical modern art pieces. Uh, some of the names escape me, but it, it's, it's very much contrasting like these, uh, these cosmopolitan, you know, Japanese, uh business like people to like these these stereotypical like classless italians oh who uh just like yeah like nick said has like you know this like uh this like facsimile of the venus de milo <laughs> and this gaudy as fuck uh crucifix so yeah, set design was really integral to this movie um having as much of a atmospheric effect as it did and that will bring us right into our workers of note, who we can thank uh, right off the bat. Uh, Norma Morisot, who did production costume design. Helping her was Robin Bunting on assistant standby wardrobe. Julie Frankham, wardrobe assistant. Gary Jones, assistant standby wardrobe. Fiona Nichols, standby wardrobe. Kate Ross, wardrobe assistant. And Paula Ryan, wardrobe super- supervisor. Yeah, we didn't really touch much on the costume design. Uh, for the most part, it is kind of your stereotypical '80s garb. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of but, lots of jean jackets. Yes, 
the yeah so in the in the in the final uh sequence uh tony soprano uh franco is wearing this incredible like washed out yes. uh jean jacket uh with a popped collar over his body well. armor yeah over this this like this blue body armor that just doesn't it nothing matches but it it's 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 quintessential 80s um frank castle punishers uh outfit is probably the most interesting punisher outfit and it also should be noted that it does not have the skull insignia it is the only punisher to not have the skull adorning his chest which is good which is good uh, he has little skulls on the pommels of his knife. Yeah, gets... uh, those are his calling cards, and those are pretty awesome. Yeah, he he subcontracts those out to some hobbyist in like Ohio or something, apparently, because like <laughs> each of his little stiletto knives has a little little Punisher skull on the on the, on the pommels. Um, yeah, it's more subtle than than the, the skull insignia, um, and. But his costume is mostly just like a leather jacket, leather pants, leather boots, all black. Uh, but it looks like he's lived in the sewer mm. for five years. I mean, it's dusty. It's grimy. I, actually, the first few times we're introduced to the Punisher, we we only see his, his boot hitting the ground first. And I feel like dust comes yeah. with his boot. It's not that there's dust in any location. It's just like his boot emits dust. Yeah, he just he has so much like asbestos from like crawling through the New York sewers. <laughs> just it accumulates on him, and uh, that's the real danger. That's the real punishment that he infects the lungs of the mafiosos, and they they just died last year from all their uh, asbestos poisoning. <laughs> but we uh, we also appreciated the score. Mm-hmm. Uh, of this film uh, very 80s score uh, somewhat tangerine dream-esque yeah. uh, for you tangerine dream fans out there oh, yeah. uh, the the composer for this film is uh, Dennis Dreith. Uh he was assisted uh, by music coordinator Bill House music editor Dan Johnson uh, and uh, another music editor Steve Livingston the score has like a kind of military drum beat to it. Uh, it's it's very heroic. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mo- the late motif for the Punisher. Uh, yeah, it's uh, just kind of your standard '80s synth, but uh, it, it works really well in this film. And there were a few moments where um, I'm thinking specifically of like the tracking shots through the sewers or uh, just other other establishing shots or whatever um where it would kind of like hum in the background kind of um kind of like a carpenter escape from new york type thing uh very 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 eerie and ominous and um this dark undercurrent of this dark cityscape that you're seeing it it did the job very well i think and the last uh worker of note that we want to highlight was kevin pike who was the special effects supervisor for the title credits. Um, Probably my favorite part of the movie. Um, Not that I like to pick one specific part, but uh, definitely the most stylized, definitely the most memorable. Um, And kudos to to Mr. Pike, because those were some kick-ass credits. Yeah, for sure. Um, I know this was Nick's first time watching the film, but I had seen it a few years ago. 
uh, and th- this was the part I was like most looking forward to rewatching nice. along with um, the the end uh, fight scene. But I was like, oh yeah, those those titles are fucking dope. Oh yeah. Um, so I, I love a good title sequence. Uh, we don't really get a lot of them anymore uh, in American cinema. Um, with the advent of CGI, uh, a lot of it is just uh, CGI trash. Um, I will say this is a weird plug for another movie, uh, but <laughs> the the end uh, titles for Aquaman had pretty cool. Oh my god! Uh, pretty pretty cool CGI graphics. So that's something. I think we talked about Aquaman in our Justice League episode as well. Yeah. So th- this, but is... we're we'll probably never talk about that film, folks, because people like yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So the, that that will never be a procon film, but um, it'll... yeah, we actually expected it to be. At one point, yeah. we 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 discussed uh doing an Aquaman episode uh closer to when it actually was released, but uh yeah, people liked it. It made billions uh and and was well received. So sorry, folks. And I think the other day they mentioned um they confirmed the sequel. So there you go. Yeah. Um, and that is uh, our uh, our sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> gonna gonna cash that check from Mister Juan. Thank you, sir. Um, uh, Lewis, who would you recommend uh, the Punisher nineteen eighty nine to? I would recommend this film to all people. Nice, nice, uh, young impressionable children. Yes, uh, especially young impressionable children. Excellent. Go to your uh, local Walmart and uh, buy the uh, the biggest uh, the biggest Nerf gun you can find. <laughs> and uh, yeah, seek seek justice uh, upon those who have who have harmed you on the playground. Uh, but no, I mean, I you know, I guess I could I could go with uh, Marvel completionists. Mm-hmm. It is a Marvel film. Um, this is when uh, Roger Corman uh, actually owned the rights for marvel films at the time yeah uh it's the reason why the 1994 fantastic four movie was made yep uh he needed to keep the rights to it uh and that is also why it was never released because there was never any real need to release it so much as just a need to make it honestly that fantastic four film looks better than the officially released Fantastic Four films. <laughs> yeah, the thing looks really cool. Yeah. Uh, it's a great costume, and some of the effects, and Doctor, Doctor Doom, Doom is probably yeah. the coolest looking Doctor Doom. Maybe we'll get there uh, down the line, episode 20 or something. Episode 44, if we get there. Who knows? Yeah, um, who knows, folks? But who would you recommend this film to, Nick? Um, B-movie action fans. I know some of my friends are really into... Uh, budget or or lower lower shelf action films um people who like a good creative uh an inventive fight scene this movie has a bunch of them uh very atmospheric and tonally appropriate uses of action um and i guess fans or or people who appreciate that kind of atmospheric new york grime um grime grimy gritty crime film this movie is kind of marvel comics uh depiction of the movie taxi driver i guess that's that's how i'd say that yeah um, that's fair and even, even apart from the action scenes there, there there are a lot of like cool uh extended um 
tonal atmospheric scenes that I think that I think are worth worth seeing. Yeah, plus the Catholic zealotry. Plus the Catholic zealotry, plus the uh, shots of Delphongren's ass. Yep. I think that's right, folks. That's as good. Taxi a- driver also had shots of Delph Lundgren's ass. <laughs> that's that's as good a note to end on as any for the Punisher. <laughs> that's right, folks. Uh, a revisionist history of the film Taxi Driver. <laughs> uh, well, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. See you next week.